so often we shine our big spotlight, our big media spotlight on the big stories. And then as the big stories continue, we shine our big media spotlight somewhere else. In the first few days and weeks of the war, we were talking about it. And then as refugees came to Canada, we continued to talk about it. And yes, we still hear about it, but it is not as foremost on our minds, perhaps as it should be. But there is war going on. And we, we know that we are talking about Russia in Ukraine. But I thought we would spend some time talking about what's going on now and what we expect to go on in the months to come. Because so often in what I have read is that Putin wants to get to winter because winter will change things. And I've also read that members of the European Union are wanting to find a way to resolve this by winter. What do we know? What don't we know? With us from the Department of Central, Eastern, and Northern European Studies at UBC is Associate Professor Florian Gassner. Thank you so very much for joining us and spending some time for, with us. Good evening, Richard. Thanks for inviting me on. Professor, um, talk about your personal connection to Ukraine, because I think that is so very important that you have a connection there. Talk a little bit about that. Quite incidentally, I used to live and work in eastern Ukraine in the years 2012 and 2013, and I left basically half a year before the war broke out in 2014. And so my personal connection is especially also to the friends and colleagues I left there, none of whom live in Donetsk anymore. They fled as soon as the hostilities broke out, and most of them fled to the west. Some of them have fled to the east, and we've been in contact ever since. But, of course, our communications intensified significantly over the past six months, and it is shocking and daunting to hear what they're all going through on a daily basis. Mm. When you were there, what was Donetsk like? Donetsk was an industrial city that was reinventing itself. So the entire east of Ukraine is also from Russia's perspective economically interesting because there's only 8% of the population that used to live there, much less now, but they generated close to 20% of the GDP. And so even though a lot of the landscape was still dominated by coal and iron and industry, uh, they were starting to move forward as the rest of Ukraine was with new stores in the city center and young people with new perspectives. And like this was a new phenomenon at the time that you had young women who were going primarily for careers and looking to go abroad and everything. So it was a really interesting time because you could see that uh, since the Orange Revolution in 2004, the country had changed and it was becoming very dynamic and vibrant and young. And, and a renaissance of culture, of, of music, of, of, of reading, uh, of vitality, a spirit that really, you know, I, I think that would be, and I'll use the word intoxicating, because I think that there was a, a, this certain freedom that, 
you know, that, that, that was really starting to emerge. Am I overstating that? I think not at all. I'll just take two examples because Ukrainian entrepreneurship is internationally significant and everybody who lives on a university campus who has seen an advertisement for the program Grammarly that promises university students to correct their essays, not just by style, but also by content, that is a Ukrainian innovation. And at the same time, they gradually had civil society began to emerge and become much stronger. I remember one year ago, there was a press conference where President Zelensky was complaining about how mean the press is to him. He literally called the press to complain to them how mean they were to him over the past year. And even though that's more humorous than anything, it shows you how much different of a country Ukraine had become compared to Russia, where all media is clearly choreographed and Ukraine was becoming a vibrant civil society. We need to talk about what's going on there now, but I also want to know um, how your friends and colleagues are right now. How are they doing? Because I know, I know your heart is still there. And it's they're all living in uh, limbos that are disastrous on different levels. So uh, one colleague of mine tried to leave the country, but she couldn't because she couldn't leave without her husband and she was pregnant, so she didn't want to leave without him. And on the other hand, further to the east, I have a friend who um, fled Donetsk at the time, and we were in close contact for the beginning of the war. And then suddenly... I realized her mom was still in Mariupol while Mariupol was being destroyed, and I asked her in three separate emails about it. I have never heard from her again since. Mm. So I hope for the best, but I fear the worst for uh, the health and safety of her family. I fear those that are being brought to Russia and re-educated. I fear about that. I fear about winter. I fear that we're going to lose engagement in the West about this. I, I, I fear that for all our good intentions, somehow the resolution is going to be somehow in, in the favor of Russia. What's your fears? Uh, I'll start with what makes me optimistic because it does seem like governments are losing interest, but there was just, I was in Germany for the past two months, and there was a survey there about whether people would support continuing the sanctions against Russia, even if the price of gas rose, even if things got more expensive, and 70% voted yes. And I'm literally on a bike trip up uh, the Sunshine Coast in Powell River right now, and along the roadside, I constantly see Ukrainian flags. At the campsite I am right now, there's Ukrainian flags. I feel that in the West, the populations are very engaged, and we just need to keep the pressure on our governments and communicate to them that we support the country in its war against Russia. And that's a very important point, because the one thing that we cannot get is apathetic about this, and that, um, you know, the courage of our convictions in the first few weeks of the war and the rallies. And that's why it's important that we do these check-ins. And that's why it's important that we don't necessarily talk about resolution on this. But I also know that through the reporting and through what I have read is that um, 
there are leaders looking for resolution on this. And can you talk to us uh, about those 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 fears about winter and about Putin just trying to hang on and trying to wear the West down? Because Germany is key in this, so is France. But I also think that Turkey is trying to play a role in this as well. And that's why Putin... Um, suddenly made that trip to Iran and to Turkey here. There's a lot of dynamics at work. Turkey is a member of the EU, but a bit of an outlier there. So I don't know how we put this all together, but maybe spend a little bit of time now and then after the break kind of educating us on, on some of the geopolitics here, because ultimately I know this affects so many people, but we have to try to understand what's going on here as the players um, play chess with people's lives. The big fear is that winter will bring a ceasefire. A ceasefire at face value sounds good, but if you look at the history of the Russian Federation since 1991, they have systematically used ceasefires to then two or three years later come back and redraw the borders again, put pressure on the smaller countries again. We saw it in 1992 in Moldova. We saw it in 1993 in Georgia, which had then a second war in 2008. We saw it in 1994 in Chechnya, where a second war then came in 1999. And so what everybody, based on this experience, would expect from a ceasefire call in the winter is that these borders would then become accepted by interna- the international community, and then Russia would take a few years to inch forward and then to renew its attack on Ukraine. How important is it Ukraine get membership and go down the path for membership into the EU? It is vital both for Ukraine, but also for the European Union, because it's the whole issue is simply a question of credibility and what the world will look like in the next 50 years. Because like, let's say hypothetically, and this is seemingly coming from left field, hypothetically, Western countries managed to be self-sufficient on renewable energies in 15 years, but that'll only be the first world. Gas and oil will play a major role in the next 50 years. And the precedent this would set if Ukraine was denied EU membership, if Ukraine was denied independence, would be that the international community uh, has made a very clear statement about whether it prioritizes gas or national self-determination and human rights. And if Ukraine were to go down in that way, uh, it would set the tone for international policy for the next generation in a way that I think we would not appreciate. Florian Gassner is with us, UBC Associate Professor at the Department of Central, Eastern, Northern European Studies. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. If you have a quick question, text it to me right now at 877-399-9898. Richard Kluche in for Ben. This is the U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, on the Donbass region and saying, no, uh, Ukraine has not lost yet, as Russia says its goals are not limited to the region. Russia's cruel and unprovoked invasion has spurred the international community into action. And today's meeting is just another sign 
of the way that nations of goodwill are rising to the moment. The security assistance that we are rushing to Ukraine is making a real difference in real time. And everyone in the contact group has been inspired by the courage of the Ukrainian people and the skill of the Ukrainian military. And that's why ministers and chiefs of defense from some 50 countries joined us today at our meeting. Uh, there is a grinding war of attrition that is occurring in the in the Luhansk Donbass region, Luhansk Donetsk, the two oblasts of, uh, of Donbass. And to answer your question about is the Donbass lost? No, it's not lost yet. Uh, the Ukrainians are making the Russians pay for every inch of territory that they gain, uh, and and advances are measured in literally hundreds of meters on a on a some days you might get a kilometer or two out of the Russians, but not much more than that. So high cost battle of attrition grinding. Uh, not lost yet uh, in uh, in in the uh, Donbas, and the Ukrainians intend to uh, continue the fight. We are talking about the big picture here with Florian Gassner, UBC Associate Professor, Department of Central, Eastern, and Northern European Studies. Professor, talk to us about the role that the United States is playing here. The United States, above all, is the biggest provider both of humanitarian aid, of money to support the country to keep Ukraine afloat, but of course they are the biggest donor of military material, of heavy weaponry, and as General Milley just said, uh, the uh, multiple rocket launching systems that the United States just a month ago sent and that are now already in the field, are they are extremely effective to the point that seemingly Russian air defense system can't even intercept them. And so what we've, been, what we've been seeing for the past two weeks is every night ammunitions depots of the Russian forces exploding to the point that one wonders how they are still uh, actually filling their cannon with shells because of all the explosions we've seen on the Internet. I subscribe to the domino theory in this, in the sense that if any part of Ukraine is lost, what's next for Putin? And I do think that the U.S. president, for all his faults, understands that and looks at the ambitions of Putin and, you know, his, his warped read of history and is trying to intercept this. How do you look at it? Well, in a, on the global scale, Putin has essentially already lost the war that he has started. Putin's, as you said, his skewed history, at least he or his uh, staff must have believed in it because they clearly thought that they would take Kiev in a couple of days and the rest of Ukrainian society would submit because they feel what he thinks, that they are actually secretly Russians and have just been tricked into thinking they're Ukrainians. And so that goal, that objective has been already lost when they lost the Battle of Kiev. And now, as General Milley said, uh, their advances are incremental. It's The reporting always made it seem a bit skewed because they're always talking about Russian advances. But if you look at the Battle of Severodonetsk, which took about like a month and a half, they gained the territory essentially of London, England in that war. So they're not incorporating huge swaths of territory. And let's say even hypothetically, they managed to hold on to it to the end of the war. They still have to govern the area. And these are not people who think pro-Russian at this point at all anymore. They would have to govern and control a hostile environment, possibly with a partisan war that will go on for years, 
So there is no real scenario where Russia has a true victory here. And I go back to the beginning of our conversation about democracy that is not only seated but flourishing. And that, again, this might be naive on my part, but once you have a taste of it, once you have a taste of it, you want to drink it. And that's what makes Ukraine so dangerous for Putin. It's, well, first of all, the Russian Federation is a house of cards. It is dependent on having these minor states in its orbit to access, for example, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. They provide much of the cheap manual labor Russia needs to build its cities. And People in Russia know they have no freedom of press, and people of Russia know that all their press meetings with the president is staged, but they are under the impression that this is the only way to run a stable country. Now, if you have a country like Ukraine that is similar to Russia in very many ways, but suddenly starts succeeding on the path of a Western-style democracy, people in Russia will and have taken notice. And so a successful Ukraine is probably the most dangerous thing for the Russian Federation right now. What's your advice for fellow Canadians who at times grow wary of this? First of all, uh, you just need to find the good sources to read and to follow. And if you want anything to keep up with uh, the war, uh, Reddit has an outstanding feed mm-hmm. specifically on Ukraine where you can mm-hmm. read the latest and you can see the closest things. And the other thing is to stay engaged also with donations because it's still important to be involved in that way and to just throw your hat in the ring and support the cause. Uh, because it is important to see this through also on our side. Speaking to you from Winnipeg, where there is a lot of Ukrainian presence uh, foremost on our minds. Professor, thank you for taking some time to join us. I know you're on a cycling trip. How many clicks are you doing a day? Uh, About 50, but I'm I'm being punished for it every day, so I'm not going to (laughs) boast about the numbers. I'm slowly collapsing (laughs) be safe my friend thank you so very much thanks for the time have a good evening